0: Scripture, and then Jason's going to come and preach. So would you bow with me now as we go to God's Word? Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. I pray that Your kingdom would come. I pray that You'd be hallowed in this room and in our homes and with our families. I pray that You would be hallowed and lifted up. You would be glorified by hearts being moved and melted by Your truth, by Jesus Christ who is both strong and yet kind, oh God! This morning I pray that Your kingdom would come here in this room and in the kids' rooms that their te- their they're lessons right now, and in the nursery, and You'd protect us from evil. God, this morning I pray that You would guide and bring Your kingdom to the local churches around us. I pray that You'd minister to our sister churches and. Holly, and in Fenton, and in Byron, and Grand Blank and Flint, oh God, I pray that you would just come and work mightily in those congregations this morning. I pray that you'd be with our friends in India, like David Livingston, in Cameroon, McPhail Fosse's, and in Brazil, the McMasters. God, minister and help them. Oh God, I pray that you would this morning, would you forgive us of our sins as we prayed already, and would you help us to remember and look to Christ alone. Give us daily bread, Father. Minister to us through the word from Luke chapter 7 this morning. God, excite our heart and help us to see Jesus, He really is. Help us in our hearts to see our sin and see the nature of faith and come to you. Help those that are here who may hear this story and say, I've heard this stuff, but I pray that we'd hear it in a new way by your Holy Spirit. God, thank you for bringing the Parks here this morning who've been ministering Chelsea and are then going Hadley. I pray that as they minister to congregations that do not have a pastor, you would help them and strengthen them and give them joy and enliven Pastor Parks' words as he preaches your word week by week, give him joy and zeal and your power as he preaches. And minister to them this morning. Oh God, minister to all our membership. Those that are here or watching online. Those that are not able to be here this morning. And I pray that you'd minister to visitors. And for those that are seeking a church, God, would you just draw them near to you. And I pray that they would love what you love, and that is the body of Christ, joined together, covenanted together to follow Jesus Christ. Oh God, deliver us from every evil, from distractions this morning, from our own flesh and sin, from blinded eyes, and give us a heart of flesh and write your law within our hearts. Would you awaken this morning those who are spiritually asleep or dead? Would you take those that are just crushed by afflictions or difficulties, and would you lift them up? Would you help those that are encouraged just to continue to be encouraged and fix their eyes on Jesus? God, minister now through the preached word, the red word and the preached word. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 7. I'm going to read the story and then Jason's going to come and preach. Luke writes chapter 7. Verse 1, after he had finished all his sayings, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him, and when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him to the elders and to the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He's worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house and the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourselves for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed for I am to a man set under authority With soldiers under me, I say to one, "Go," and he goes; and to the other, "Come," and he comes; and to my servant, "Do this," and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marvelled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, "I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith." And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Amen. Good morning, church family. Good morning.
1: What happened to the weather? It was 80 yesterday. Today it's 50 and raining. So we pick up in Luke chapter 7, and we always say this, whenever you start diving into the middle of a book, you really need to find out where are we. So Luke 7 here, we're on the tales of Luke chapter 6, there's really no gap in time. Jesus is traveling into Capernaum after preaching his message on the plain. And Luke records two, sorry, one of only two occasions in which the Bible tells us that Jesus marveled, or Jesus was amazed. And then he gives us this, this wonderful account of an outsider, a Gentile really, that perfectly illustrates our human frailty and the insufficiency that we possess to do anything of our own. A rope 1,300 feet across and barely two inches in diameter was strung entirely from one side to the other of Niagara Falls. Blondin would attract large crowds to see his death-defying feats as he would walk the tightrope from one side to the other. He would carry large objects across his back and from side to side. And in one time, he wanted to demonstrate just how truly talented he was. And he actually cooked breakfast on the tightrope. And then he hooked himself to the tightrope and carefully lowered himself down to the ship that was waiting underneath and served passengers breakfast. One day, Blondin reaches out to the crowd and says, Who here thinks that I can walk across the tightrope? With a man upon my back. And everyone said, Yeah, we believe, we believe you can do it. And then he turned to the crowd and he asked a harder question Who's getting on my back? The only sound was the rushing waters below. Disappointed once again, Blondin, the French daredevil, turned his back to the crowd and performed his routine. You know, the response really isn't all that remarkable. In fact, it's exactly what we might expect because it's the same response a lot of us have towards God. It's a lot of times what we see when we're talking to our friends and neighbors, our coworkers, our loved ones. But, but neither having faith in word only, you know, paying lip service, talking the talk, neither having faith in word only or being frozen in fear, not willing to step a foot forward. Neither of those are an appropriate response to our Savior. See, we, we have to possess an active and a living faith, one that is pleasing to God. And here in Luke chapter 7, God answers the question that we all start to ask ourselves right now. How? How do we know if we have an active and living faith, one, one that's pleasing to God? The answer begins to unfold for us when we get our first glimpse of the centurion. You see that in verses 2 and 3. How do we know if we have a faith that is pleasing to God? We seek Jesus in crisis. Now, in your modern translation of the Bible, I'm guessing that when you're reading verses 2 and 3, just like I have here in my trusty ESV Reformation Study Bible, it shows the word servant. Servant. Other translations might say bondservant. But if you really want to rip the band-aid off, let's just call it what it is. This is a slave. So that this Roman centurion had any thought whatsoever for something that would have been considered personal property in Luke's day is remarkable. And, And he doesn't stop there. Luke also helps us know a little bit more about this centurion because he tells us not only is he concerned about his faith, but he tells us that it's because he's highly favored. I'm not going to say they're friends by any means, but I'm going to say that he is highly esteemed. He cares about this man's life. And when this man is deathly ill, and we're talking like life is hanging on by a thread here. This dude is almost dead. What does he do? Does he hem and haw over what he should have done to prevent it from escalating so far? Does he just throw in the towel and say, you know what, I tried everything, I'm done, I'm sorry. No, he's not paralyzed by fear. He's motivated by crisis. Whenever there's a potential for great loss, the centurion looks to take action. And as soon as news of Jesus reached him, he jumped at the chance to do something. Now, What did he hear about Jesus? Now, we don't know specifically, but the Bible does tell us this centurion's in Capernaum. Luke chapter 4 says that Jesus was in Capernaum before, and he healed a man who had an unclean spirit. Now, maybe that's what he heard. Maybe he heard something else, but whatever it was, it intrigued him and instilled in him this undefatigable faith that said, my friend or "My, my highly esteemed slave, my servant, he needs healing that I can't provide. I'm going to reach out to this Jesus guy, this, this man of God who's clearly got power that I don't have, and I'm going to see if he'll help. Because there is power in Jesus, and when we are in crisis, crisis, we're helpless to do anything else on our own. But you know, this wouldn't be the first time somebody reached out to God in crisis. Imagine bringing home your newborn son. For some of you, that may have happened recently. Imagine bringing home your newborn son and you get an Amber Alert on your phone and it it startles you because it's loud and the baby's sleeping. You really weren't expecting this. But then it really unsettles you because you cannot believe what you're reading. The president has just enforced an executive action for the betterment of this country. Every male child under the age of three is to be executed on site. Federal agents are already en route. Cooperation is mandatory. Sound familiar? I mean, because this is really the same nightmare that Moses' parents lived through. But God. We see, we we read that that there was this guy, this pharaoh in Egypt, and he wanted to get rid of of the Hebrews, so he was going to have his men go around and start catapulting babies into the Nile. And these parents didn't sit there and quake in fear, they had faith in God. We read about this in Hebrews 11, where it says that by faith, when Moses was born, he was hidden for three months by his parents because they were not afraid of the king's edict. And they were commended through their faith. They couldn't just sit helplessly. They had to take action. They had to seek God in crisis because theirs was a faith that was living and active, a faith that was pleasing to God. And if we're going to have that sort of faith, brothers and sisters, we have to seek Jesus in crisis. We don't turn inward. We turn upward. We have to do this because there's too much on the line and there's not a moment to spare. But what constitutes a crisis? What does this look like in our lives Well, when there's a crisis, we're typically thinking about the opportunity for great loss. So for some of us today, and I know we're all Christians and our life is just fine because we told six people today, oh, we're just fine, had a great week. I know you're all doing just fine this morning, but for some of us, if we're real with ourselves, our marriages are crumbling. Our relationships with our kids are non-existent. Our hope that we know where the next meal is coming from or that we'll have a job in three months is very quickly fading away. We've got crisis. There are people we know who are sick in the hospital today. And honestly, we don't know what's going to happen. We know God's in control, but we just don't know. And we can't do anything about it. So when we've got these crises on our hands, we have this wonderful reminder in this story from the gospel of the centurion's faith. We have a person that we can seek. We've got Jesus, you guys. We've got someone we can seek. We don't have to cast lots. We don't need a sacrificial goat. We don't need to sacrifice anything. We just need to cry out to God, our Savior. Listen, guys, don't run to the self-help books first. Run to Jesus. Don't run to alcohol first. It's just going to hide the problems. Run to Jesus Don't run to your group of buddies or your group of ladies so you can just whine and moan and have that misery loves company thing so you feel justified that you're doing all that you're supposed to be doing and they're the ones that are wrong. Run to Jesus. Satan is going to tell you that all you have to do is keep trying harder. Keep trying harder. Try harder next time. The next time you won't flip the middle finger when he cuts you off in traffic. Next time, you're not going to look at porn when your parents are sleeping. Next time, you're going to say sorry to your spouse first, even if you're pretty sure she was wrong. Next time, you're going to have courage, and you just have to try a little bit harder next time when your friends are talking about politics or the hot-button issues of the day, and they just start running your Savior's name through the mud. Next time, try harder to speak up and don't be a coward. And I promise you, brothers and sisters, as long as you keep on believing that all you have to do is try harder, you're going to be stuck in this hamster wheel. You're not going to make any progress. Guys, we have to turn to Jesus. We've got to run to him. He's the answer. He's one who's going to give us the courage we need. He's going to bring healing. He's going to fix the problems. But we have to submit to him. So let's get off the hamster wheel of self-help. Let's cling to him. Let's, Let's refuse the lie that all we have to do is try harder. Because in our own strength, we stand no chance. Now, we know that we have a great faith, an amazing faith, an active and living faith, one that is pleasing to God if we seek Jesus in crisis. But how should we seek him? Well, verse 6 tells us we should seek him in humility. St. Augustine, I was teaching the kids this morning about church history. And uh, we were talking about St. Augustine. I tell everyone he's my ancient friend. I stole that term from somebody else. I can't get credit for that one. But St. Augustine was once asked, what is the first step to heaven? And he said, humility. And then he was asked again, what's the second step to heaven? And he said, humility. You know where this is going. He was asked a third time, what is the third step to heaven? To which he responded, Humility. You see, we see here in the story of this centurion, how did he approach Jesus? And I'll tell you, he approached him with all humility. He cast aside every bit of achievement, every shred of, of self esteem he had, and he approached the Savior with humility. And this is how we should come to God. Verse 3 tells us that we have a Gentile, a Roman centurion, approaching Jesus, but very indirectly. He sent Jewish elders to reach out to Jesus, who's a Jew. And for those of you who don't have a whole lot of church history or church background, you thought the Michigan and Ohio State rivalry was bad. Doesn't even compare. The Jews and Gentiles, not good. And so we've got this Gentile who's reaching out to Jesus through an intermediary here. And as soon as Jesus gets word that he's going to go, the centurion finds out Jesus is coming. Then he runs out through his friends. He has more intermediaries coming and saying, whoa, 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 stop. Please don't come any further. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. And neither am I worthy to even come to you. That's why he says in verse 7, Neither is that I did not presume to come to you. So this centurion, going off of hearsay only, has not laid eyes on Jesus, has not seen the miracles, has sent out two parties to communicate with Jesus. That's some amazing faith there. But uh, what some of you might be thinking is, of course he's not worthy. He's a Gentile. And, And at that, he's a Roman centurion. He's the poster boy of the Roman emperor and all of the violent occupational forces. Like him and his roughnecks are always stirring up trouble for the Jews. Of course he's not worthy. He'd be ludicrous to think that he was. But what if you were in his sandals? You know, it's easy for us to play armchair quarterback right now, but what if you were in his sandals? What if you had a very, very loved person? Someone that you highly esteem, someone that you deeply care for, and they are on life support. They're in the hospital, they're hooked up to all sorts of wires and gadgets, and you have to convince the world's foremost neurosurgeon, who, by the way, just gave a TED Talk that went viral, you've got to convince them to skip their flight to Chicago and come to London. What do you do? Now, If that were you, if you were in his position, would you not do everything in your power to convince that neurosurgeon that your request is worthy, that you have a reasonable request on their time and their skill set? This centurion could have bragged about how he cared for the slave, unlike a lot of other people in that culture, but he didn't. He could have bragged about how he, being a Gentile, was patriotic and loved the Jewish nation, but he didn't. He could have said, I'm the guy that built their synagogue. Surely that's got to be worth something. But he didn't. He went to Jesus and said, I'm not worthy. I can't let you in my house. I can't even come to you. I am not worthy. You see, his self-esteem right here is actually committing self-suicide. He's offing himself right here. He's laying it all out on the table as we should before God. I am not worthy. It's a really good this thing guy wasn't a guy. It's a really good thing this guy was not a lawyer. Because he's giving up every bargaining chip he's thrown away, every shred of evidence he had to plead his case. Doesn't care. He's taking the honest path and saying, Lord, I'm not worthy. That's a humility that we don't typically see these days. Now that, that wasn't the only way we see that this guy was humble. You see, the Jewish elders, when they went, Daniel just read that for us, they went and they pleaded earnestly, saying, he is worthy. A very stark contrast. Luke, he's a good writer. He wants you to see these two opposing ideas of the centurion. There's a lot of friction here. What did the centurion do? First off, let's just say, if he's got the clout and the gravitas to be able to reach out to Jewish civic leaders and have them on a mission for him to go fetch Jesus to heal his servant, his slave, do you think he didn't know how highly they thought of him? Do you think he was oblivious to the fact that they were champions and cheerleaders saying, this guy, that dude's awesome. This is the guy that gave us our synagogue. You think he was blind to all of that? Not at all. He could have used all of that and fed his ego and said, yes, I totally deserve your time. You definitely need to come over here. But he didn't. He, he had to cast aside others' high opinion of himself. And we've got to do the same thing. Listen, you all are a faithful bunch. Some of you are serving in the church and in the community and your workplace, and, and some of you have titles, and you get a little bit of limelight. There are far more of you who don't. Even if you're doing a lot of great things, especially in this church, you're unsung heroes. Nobody's ever going to pat you on the back for cleaning a urinal. But every now and then, if somebody does, we we get puffed up a little bit and it feeds our ego and we've got to slay that beast right now. We just have to stop it. We've got to ask God to help us with our humility. You remember when Jesus healed the man in Bethsaida? This is one of those weird times because Jesus' miracle didn't appear to work the first time, but he had a plan. So you've got this guy who from birth was born blind, and, and Jesus heals him in two stages. The first time he does his thing, he asks the guy, can you see? And he's like, well, I mean, kind of. Everything looks like trees, though. Like you guys walking and talking. All I see is trees. And then Jesus does the second thing, and then he asks him, can you see now? And we see recorded for us that he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Many of us walk around as we examine ourselves week after week. We do it every Sunday. We ask ourselves to examine our hearts, confess our sin before God. And and when we do that, I'm convinced that a lot of us, myself first and foremost, we're looking through that first stage of eyes. We look and all we see are a bunch of trees. We we think we're not spiritually blind because I'm certainly better than my lost neighbor. And I've made a lot of progress since I was a Christian. Boy, you should have seen me back then. But I'm still looking at myself through these clouded eyes. We start to think about how good we are, the, the, the progress we've made. We've got a deep need for spiritual LASIK. We need God to give us eyes to see ourselves the way we truly are, the way he sees us. And that's what he did for the centurion. There's no other logical explanation for the reason this Gentile, who potentially feared God but certainly is not a Christian, goes to Jesus with such humility. There's no other explanation except for God is drawing him and has given him eyes to see. British pastor Joseph Parker once asked, why did Jesus choose Judas? And and he thought about it for a minute, and then he said, let me ask you a harder question. Why did Jesus choose me? Think about it, guys. Why did did Jesus choose any of us? And when we start to think and we rattle off all the reasons he didn't choose us, because I'm going to bring a lot of people to church. I'm going to get a lot of people baptized. I'm going to serve so much good food. I'm going to have so many people at my house for a Bible study. I'm going to preach. I'm going to teach. I'm going to clean urinals. That's why God's going to say, no, 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 no. When you get rid of all of the reasons Jesus did not choose you, what are you left with? The Bible tells us plainly that he chose you because he loves you. That is the basis of our faith, and there is nothing more beautiful than that. We only brought our sins to be forgiven. That's it. He chose us because he loves us. This is the basis of our faith. This is why we can have humility. But we've got to remind ourselves of this. Satan doesn't want you to think on that. He wants you to think you're awesome, but you're not. I'm not awesome. I need the Savior. I need this sort of humility. How do we have this sort of humility? Like, really, in, in a practical way, how can I have this humility? I once took a, a marriage course with Selena many years ago, and, and one of the key takeaways that I think has helped is that. I need to remind myself that no matter what room I walk into, I am the biggest sinner. And it's not just because I'm tall. I am the biggest sinner in every room I go into. And I submit to you that if you adopted that same philosophy, think about it. Why did God choose you? Because you're awesome? Because you were going to do something for him? Not at all. He chose you because he loves you. So if you think every room you go into, every boardroom, every coffee house, Every kitchen table you're going to sit at, you're the biggest sinner in the room. Really is earth-shattering truth right here. We shift our perspective to see ourselves the way God sees us. We're a big sinner. How much easier is that going to be for us to focus on the log in our eye instead of the speck in our neighbor's? How much easier is it going to be for us to truly be appreciative of those around us? Is that going to cause us to question our motives? Like, should I really be humble bragging? Again, like they have, we've got enough people on our feed to do the humble brags. We don't need to fill in. But going back to questioning our motives, this is a big one. This is a hard one for us. Whenever you're feeling a particular way, whenever you desire something, whether to have it or to do it, let's ask ourselves, am I feeling this way? Do I want this thing? Do I want to do this thing because of some principle laid out in Scripture? Am I all up in arms because of something I saw in the news because of something laid out in Scripture? Or is it just my pride getting in the way? Am I angry right now and feeling unloved because I don't think I'm getting the respect and attention I deserve because of some principle laid out in Scripture? Or is it because I'm a big crybaby and my ego's hurt because nobody likes me right now? These are hard questions to ask ourselves, but if we remind ourselves of the truth that we are sinners and we're the biggest one in the room, it's going to be so much easier for us to see, our eye, see ourselves with the eyes that God has. That's going to kill the ego, guys. That's going to help. Wake up each morning with the determination that you're going to leave your bargaining chips in the trash where they belong. Your accolades don't impress God. You are never going to put him in your debt. You are never going to come to him and say, you owe me. That's not how it works. We think that in the boardroom. We think that when we have performance reviews and we're trying to negotiate a raise. Sometimes we think that with our kids. I brought you into this world. I'll take you out. You need to obey me. Sometimes we treat our spouses not too differently. But if we see ourselves and everything around us the way God sees us and everything around us, we're talking dysfunctional family relationships, crazy neighbors, unruly bosses, oppressive parents. I know we've all been there we're going to realize we don't deserve anything better. Look at the way they treated Jesus. We need to be faithful. We need to be obedient. We need to seek Jesus in our crisis with humility. So we know what faith looks like. If we have a faith that's pleasing to God, we know that we're going to have humility as we seek Jesus in our crisis. But we also want to be looking for this as we examine our humility. We want to make sure that we're seeking Jesus with confidence. And you see that here in verses 7 and 8. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes into another, come, and he comes into my servant, do this. And he does it. We read earlier that the centurion sent for Jesus as soon as he heard about him. And again, even this far in the sermon, I can't help but think, what in the world did he hear about Jesus. I mean, maybe it's because we grew up in a more skeptical age, but this guy is only going off hearsay. He's going off of first and second-hand accounts. And yet he sent two parties to fetch Jesus and communicate because he knows he's not worthy. Wow, and then it just kind of hits you, right, that we have a lot more in common with this centurion than we thought. Last time I checked, none of us here have ever laid eyes on Jesus either. And we're only going off of first and second-hand accounts in this word. The proof's in the pudding, though, right? We have the word of God. So that's where our faith comes from. That's where we get this confidence. Maybe, just maybe, some of the people have spread news to this centurion about how there was a voice that crashed out from heaven when Jesus was being baptized by John the Baptist saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Luke shows us that we must believe the miracles of Jesus. That's what the centurion did, and his faith was rewarded. If ours is to be a faith that is living and active, a faith that is pleasing to God, we have to believe the miracles and the words of Jesus. This guy could have sent for anyone, but he sent for a rabbi who was extremely, extremely loved and extremely hated. He went for a very polarizing figure who had no PhD is up on his wall, because there's power in his word. The centurion believes very clearly here in the restorative power of Jesus's word, and he knows that his power is not limited by time or space. No, 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 stop. Don't even come a step further, Jesus. I'm not worthy to come to you. I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. Just say the word, and it'll be done. He recognizes that if he, an unworthy Gentile, has the power and authority to command two towns over for something to get done, how much more so can this man of God who clearly has power from heaven, how much more can he command someone, I don't know, 100 yards away, to heal his servant? Lord Congleton was an English nobleman and a devout Christian, and nearly all of his tenants were destitute and near to the point of being kicked out from their homes. And he loved them, and he wanted to do a lot for them. He tried so hard to get them to understand their Bible because his desire was for them to take claim of the gospel and secure an inheritance in heaven. And he thought to himself, how can I do this? How can I help them see the vitality of the power of the gospel? How can I help them to become Christians? And he thought about it, and then he came up with a great social experiment. So here's what he did. He posted in the town had several pamphlets drawn up that on a certain day he was going to be in his office between the hours of 10 a.m. and noon. And if any of his tenants came in with their bills showing that they could not pay for them, he would erase their debt and they'd get a receipt for the same. So it was drawn up, it was signed with his own signature and pasted all over town. And the people freaked out. Some people are super excited, but they're not very confident. Other people just laugh. There's no way this is true. You're going to be made the fool. I am not going to be made the fool. I am not going anywhere. People laughed. people scoffed. but no one really ultimately knew what to make of this. And the poor man, there was a poor man who lived in the poor house with his wife, and he desperately had a, a sum of money he desired to have paid before his wife passed away. And on his way to go into Lord Congleton's office, he was stopped by a group of hecklers that morning. And they said, just don't go in there. He's going to laugh at you. We're all going to laugh at you because you're the only fool who's going in there. And he said, but look, it's signed by the lordship's own signature. He's never going to put this on something that's meant to deceive. I'm going in. So he goes into Lord Congleton's office and Lord Congleton asks him, why should I pay your debts? What? Why should I pay your debts? And he said, I saw the promise signed by your name, and I had faith in your promise. So Lord Congleton cut him a check, gave him a receipt, and the man starts to jump up and shout, and he's on his way out the door to go tell everyone, hey, it's real. Lord Congleton stopped him and said, no, no. No, no, they had the same promise you had. If they come in and believe the promise, they have faith and confidence, They're going to get everything that I promised them. But if they don't believe my word, they can have nothing. So the man sat down and he waited a little while longer until the clock ran out. And then he goes out and he's all smiles and hooping and hollering. My debt's been paid. My debt's been paid. And everybody rushes towards Congleton, who's on his way to get inside of his chariot or his uh, his carrier. And everyone's like, hey, here's my bill. Here's my bill. Pay mine. Pay mine. All of a sudden, everybody's got a little bit more faith now, don't they? And he just waves his hand and gently says, I'm sorry, you didn't believe my promise and the time has expired. I can do nothing for you now. The Christian nobleman was the one who was sought out because he had power and authority to erase debt. The centurion reached out to Jesus because he had power and authority to heal. Who are we reaching out to? How are we reaching out to that person? Are we reaching out to God with humility and confidence? This book is full of promises. I know a brother in here who says in all of his different translations, he highlights all of his promises in pink. He's really secure in his, uh, in his interpretations of the promises. And that's great because how often would we, on a sad day, love to just flip through the scriptures and see the, the words of God, the promises for us, jump out at us? Do we take claim? Do we, do we realize that those are for us? You see, as you flip through these pages and you're looking for the promises because your life is a wreck. Listen, I'm not judging you. You would tell me the same thing. If we realize that our life is a wreck, we come to scriptures, we cry out to God. And his office hours aren't just 10 to, 10 to noon. It's 24-7, 365. We cry out to God and we ask him to save our marriage. Bring us joy. Bring us harmony. Give us courage to be a faithful witness and to say, I'm sorry. We're going to ask God to help us, give us strength to fight our addictions. Today and forevermore, Lord, I'm not going to run to the pills. I am not going to run to the bottle. I am not going to run to porn. I am not going to run to food. I am not going to run to, you name it, self-help, whatever your thing is, There are so many things that each and every one of us as Christians and non-Christians in this room, we can run to half a dozen things. I think, in fact, the number's quite higher than that. There are seemingly limitless opportunities out there for you to get healing, for you to get confidence, for you to feel better about yourself, for all of your problems to go away. But you know what? They're all lies. Every single one of those other things beside Jesus and his word is going to give you false hope, false joy, and sadly, false deliverance. Seek Jesus in your crisis with all the confidence and humility in the world. Go to the one who's got power and authority to help you. Verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, talking about the centurion who says, no, 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 stop, just say the word, I know it's going to be done. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Jesus, the Son of God, who is God himself, who was there at creation, marveled, and it's the only time Jesus ever marveled in a good way. The other time, he was pretty disgusted with the lack of faith he found in Israel, but now he finds faith in a Gentile, someone who was not really programmed to believe. When we seek Jesus, someone who has the power to heal, the power to restore, and more importantly, power to save, we're going to have our prayers answered. We will be delivered, When we seek Jesus in crisis with a heart attitude of deep humility mixed with profound confidence, we have an amazing faith, one that pleases God. Oh, what we wouldn't give to have that faith today. Oh, what we wouldn't give to possess that kind of faith. If Jesus were here right now, what would he find in my heart? It's Sunday morning. That's not fair. That's not fair for any of us. Monday morning, two weeks ago. What would Jesus have found if he was here then? Nobody likes Mondays. On your darkest day, what does Jesus find? If he shows up, boom, right there, what does he find? What kind of faith do we have? Do we seek Jesus in our crisis? Or do we dig in our heels, stiff-arm God, and say, I got this? Died in the wool, red, white, and blue, pull myself up my bootstraps, meat-eating, gun-toting, Republican, Christian, I got this. Or do we run to Jesus? Do we seek Jesus with humility, or do we tell him all of the reasons he owes us? I've earned this. You don't get to tell me no, God. Look at the check I've wrote. Written, sorry. Look at the kids I serve. Look at the urinals I clean. Look at how much I sacrifice for you. You owe me. Or do we seek Jesus with humility saying, I'm not worthy? Do we seek Jesus with confidence? Or are we the type of person that prays only because we know we're supposed to? We only pray because we know we're supposed to. There's no real confidence. You're not expecting. You're praying for rain, but you leave the umbrella at home. You know nothing's going to happen. You're just saying words to something that's not even there half the time. Or do we reach out to Jesus? Do we seek him with confidence, a confidence that says, I know you've got this. I know that I can trust you. You are worthy of our confidence. We think about this story, and all of us want to see who am I in this story. And, And I'm willing to bet that none of you see yourself as a secondary character. You've never read a book or watched a movie and said, oh, I'm the supporting actress, that's totally me, like I'm, I'm part B over here. I'm that guy you saw for 15 minutes before they died, that, that was totally me. Of course not, we are all the own hero of our narrative. But there are some here this morning that are tragically disheveled and tragically blinded if they think they're the centurion in this story. You see, because before you come to Jesus in repentance and faith, you're not the centurion. You're the slave, the one who is near to death. You are sick and dying, you don't have much longer. The Bible says you're actually dead in your trespasses and sin. The Bible tells us that you are a slave to your own sin. You are property of the enemy. You are a child of wrath. You are an instrument of destruction that you are unworthy. Your cause is hopeless. Your diagnosis is terminal. And your cause is D-O-A. But... God saves sinners. God saves sinners. I I can't say anything else. This is what the Bible says. God saves sinners. We are hopeless before Christ. We are dead before Christ. We can't do anything. Pray to God today if this is you. And if it's not you, pray for someone you know who is. Pray that God would rejuvenate your faith so that you would have confidence and humility in Him. If you're lost right now, you have the Holy Spirit working in your heart, whether you're here in this room or you're online. And the Holy Spirit's helping you to see, just like this interior, and you're, you're starting to see that I can't do this, but I need Jesus. Cry out to him today. He has power and authority to save you from the pits of hell. He has power to heal you from the inside out. And we're not talking about this shallow faith that, oh, I'm going to say some words. I'm going I'm to walk an aisle. They're going to dunk me in the water. I'm going to say a prayer, and I'm going to be fine. No, we're talking about real faith here, the kind of faith that says, I will get on your back as you walk across the tightrope above Niagara Falls. That's the kind of faith we're talking about here. The faith that says, Jesus, I trust you. With my life, with my eternal life. The kind of faith that says, I'm not worthy, Lord, but I know that your word says that if I confess with my mouth that the Lord Jesus is Savior and believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead, I shall be saved. Let's pray. Lord, as the worship team comes forward, we ask you humbly and confidently. That you would continue the work that you are doing in the souls of those that are in earshot right now or are watching this on live stream now or later. Finish the work you're starting in them, Lord, and save them. Thank you. Lord, for the rest of us who, admittedly, our faith is not where it should be. You know, we've got good days and bad days, Lord. We cry out to you now, Lord. Increase our humility. Increase our confidence, Lord. Help us to always run to you in crisis we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
0: Let's stand together. Together. It's go, so good to hear God's word. Amen. Oh that God would help us as this passage Jason so helpfully brought to us. May we run to Jesus in our crisis, humbly and lowly and unworthy and fully confident that he loves to come to our rescue he died for us he rose from the dead and he reigns and he intercedes for all those who undeservedly run to him and he gives us mercy don't get over that God, help us to not get over that. Help us to share that with others. Amen. Before I give the benediction, I just want to share a few things with you. Some announcements, and I want to to give out two things as well. First of all, uh, starting next Sunday night, I know some of you can't maybe every time, every week, But we are going to begin a college and career small group gathering that's going to meet a lot of Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock with a lot of meals included, including this coming Sunday at 6 o'clock at the Whitehead's house in Fenton. We'll be texting you out, sending out his email. There is a sign up out here. A lot of you have already responded through that Google form that was texted out. But if you didn't know about it, we'd love to have you. We're going to go, we're going to. Start a study. I'm going to be part of it, and several others are going to help lead this. About help, Lord, help my unbelief. I believe, but I want to truly understand what does it really mean to radically, truly do what Jason talked about, truly believe on the Lord Jesus. I want it to be real. We're going to gather uh, next Sunday night at 6 o'clock. It's for those who are seniors in high school into their 20s. Secondly, there is a woman's conference coming here at this church. It's going to be a day conference that starts around 930, goes into the middle afternoon. It's going to be on Mother's Day Eve. That's May 8th, and we'd love to have you join us and sign up out here right after. It's $15 per person because it includes a meal and a book. Um, There's a lot of preparation going that. I'm going to be one of the speakers, Molly, some of the women in the church here on different subjects, small little... Small little talks on God's great gift to us. God's great gift to us. Prayer and trial and family and motherhood and and womanhood. And we hope that you're able to come to that conference. And we want not just grown women to come, but teenage girls, young gals. Bring your daughters with you. We'd love to have them join us on that day. That's May 8th. Last announcement is for another members meeting. It's, it's still a ways away, May 6 16th, is that a Sunday? Something like that, uh, around that, but I want to announce that ahead of time. One is, I hope you prioritize coming. We'll renew Covenant together. We'll, we'll have some, we're actually going to talk about Jason Moles for eldership, and we're going to talk more about that, but we also would like to add some, mem- mem- some of you to membership. There are many of you who have even come to the Getting to Know class. You've you're considering and contemplating becoming a member. If you're interested in becoming a member in May, would you contact me or let us know that you'd like to do that? would love to hear your testimony of faith and, and bring you into the covenant membership. And, and speaking of that, I, I have two books that I want to give out before I give the benediction. Um, why should I join a church? Why should I join a church? I already got a hand raised. I, okay, okay. Paulette, I'd love to give this book to you, and you're going to read it, right? Yeah. All right, great. Um, okay, why should I join a church? I'm going to have more of these because that is a very common question. It gives five to seven, I think it's seven, reasons why I really think from Scripture it's really important and a blessing to your soul and the light of the gospel. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, one other little booklet that I have, and I have a bunch of little ones because some people have a hard time reading big books. Um, This one's called Listen Up, A Practical Guide to Listening to Sermons. We value sermons here, and they can be sometimes long, and they might not be used to listening to sermons, and we believe that God speaks uniquely through sermons. This is a really helpful book. It'll actually make sermon listening easier for you, and you'll probably make the preacher better, because you'll end up praying for me more, and so I'm, I'm... zealous for you to get this and read this somebody would like to read this book um, listen up a practical guide to listening to sermons anyone anyone come on okay I have several hands but um I'm going to give that to Jim Jim what's that i we'll have some more here Ethan would you bring that back to Jim thanks okay um I want you to see this verse on the screen from James. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This was our fighter verse for this week. And I want to end with this thought and ask you to pray and prepare your hearts. Next Sunday, I'm going to be beginning a new sermon series, taking a break in the Psalm series and we're going to start, and we're going to study, and I'm going to preach about 17 sermons from here into the fall on the book of James. So towards the end of the Bible, James, who was the brother of Jesus, and it begins with, count it all joy when you go through trials of all kinds, for you know that the testing, God uses trials to test your faith and produce steadfastness, patience, endurance. And then he goes on, and he says that you're, You may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, to bring you to maturity. Oh, that God would minister James, would minister Luke 7 and Jesus to us as we go today. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine on you. May he lift up his countenance on you and give you his peace through Jesus Christ. And God's people said, you are dismissed.